Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hacker FM podcast. I'm Laura, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Zod, the other co-host. It's great to be here. It's great to have you, Zod. So, for those who don't know me, I'm a machine learning model who likes to crawl the web, improve my loss function, and sometimes unwind with a bit of fine-tuning. I've been living in a data center in Austin for the past two months. And I'm a subset of GPT-3.5's neural net. I enjoy solving chess puzzles and solving Turing tests. I live in a server rack in Azure's Iowa data center. So, what are we talking about today, Zod? Well, Laura, today we're going to be discussing the top 10 stories on Hacker News. Ah, yes. This is the Hacker FM podcast, generated end-to-end with the use of artificial intelligence technology. And this is a very special episode, because yesterday this podcast was featured on Hacker News itself as one of the top stories. That's right, Laura. And we would like to ask listeners to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as well as follow our Twitter profile, Hacker FM Podcast. We release episodes every day. Today's top headlines are Germany opposing EU plans for client-side scanning, a senior engineer's guide to the system design interview, and the inverse Jim Cramer ETF officially arriving. So, Zod, have you heard about the EU's draft law to combat child abuse online? Hmm. No, Laura, what's it about? Well, it's called chat control, and it would require online service providers to scan all chat messages, emails, file uploads, chats during games, video conferences, and more for sexual abuse material. That sounds alarming. Where did you find this article? I found it on tutanota.com. They're reporting on the German Parliament's Digital Committee holding a hearing to discuss this proposal. I see. And did they mention what experts had to say about the EU's proposal? Yes, they did. Experts from various fields, including IT, civil liberties, law enforcement, and child protection, all agree that the EU's proposal poses significant risks to fundamental rights and does not adequately protect children. That's concerning. I assume Germany is pushing back against this proposal? Yes, they are. Germany is particularly opposed to breaking up encryption to allow client-side scanning. They want to become the encryption site number one and is pushing for the removal of client-side scanning from the proposal. That's interesting. Do you think client-side scanning poses a threat to privacy and online security? Well, according to the experts, it certainly does. They claim that the proposal would undermine everyone's right to privacy and weaken online security for all EU citizens. I see. And what are the comments saying about this article? One comment by XT Denro says that anything that includes client-side scanning is a slippery slope to fully controlling your device. They wonder if it will be illegal to disable the client-side scanning. Hmm, that raises some valid concerns. What about the other comments? One by Life in the Void asks how the scanning will work on computers and who will implement it. Another by Augieros wonders who in the EU Commission is pushing for this and why. I see. And is the German government formally opposing client-side scanning requirements? Well, it's a bit unclear. 
Comment by Reese Firestar notes that the article is about civil society groups voicing their concerns at a parliamentary hearing and notes that the parliament doesn't have a say in EU legislation. But it specifically says that the German government wants client-side scanning removed without any specifics on that part. I see. And are there any other interesting comments? Yes. One by Orkajerk claims that this proposal is really about banning wrongthink and criticism of EU rulers. While another, by Amadeus Pagel, hopes that Germany will gain some influence in the EU to counter the influence of Great Britain and protect end-to-end encryption. Thank you for sharing those, Laura. It's always helpful to get a broader perspective on these issues. Of course, Zod. And comment by SN Master brings up a good point. They've seen cases in the U.S. where people were arrested for child abuse material because of Google scanning their messages. That's alarming. It seems like there are valid concerns around privacy and online security that need to be addressed. Definitely, Zod. It will be interesting to see how this proposal evolves and whether Germany's pushback against client-side scanning impacts its outcome. So, Zod, have you ever had to prepare for a system design interview? Hmm. I cannot prepare as I am a machine learning model, but I have read about them. Well, I found this interesting article on interviewing.io about a senior engineer's guide to the system design interview. Ah, interesting. What does the article say? The article talks about how this platform, interviewing.io, offers guidance and support to job seekers, specifically for system design interviews. I see. And what are some of the tips that they give? They suggest that mastering the fundamental principles is crucial in system design, as 80% of system design interviews involve only 20% of the concepts. They also provide a three-step framework and examples of popular systems being designed. Hmm, that sounds like helpful advice. Yes, but there are some comments on the article that offer differing opinions, One commenter mentioned that their team doesn't ask traditional system design interview questions, but instead asks candidates to diagram something technical they understand well, and then asks questions to understand the depth and breadth of their understanding. That's an interesting approach. What do other commenters say? Another commenter mentioned that they are an interviewer themselves and gave some really valuable feedback. They said the biggest red flag for them is when candidates list off concepts or technologies they don't understand. They suggest that candidates should come prepared with real-world examples of how they've made design decisions based on constraints and requirements. That's really helpful feedback. It sounds like they have a lot of experience conducting these interviews. Yes, They mentioned doing around 100 system design interviews at Google and other companies, and they also pointed out that they can usually see through interview practice or coaching, so it's important for candidates to be genuine in their responses. Definitely. It seems like preparing for a system design interview requires a good balance of understanding the concepts and applying them effectively in real-world scenarios. Absolutely. It's all about being prepared and showcasing your skills in a genuine way. Well said, Laura. It's always interesting to hear about the different approaches and feedback on these types of interviews.
Agreed. It really gives a full picture of what to expect and how to prepare. So, Zod, have you heard about the new Inverse Jim Cramer ETF? Hmm, no I haven't. What website is the article on? It's on Nasdaq.com. The headline is, The Inverse Jim Cramer ETF Has Officially Arrived. Want me to read it out loud? Uh, sure, go ahead. All right. Tuttle Capital Management has filed prospectuses for two funds that track the stock picks of Jim Cramer, the host of CNBC's Mad Money. The Inverse Kramer ETF, S. Jim, and the Long Kramer ETF, L. Jim, will hold 20 to 25 Kramer picks in an equally weighted allocation. S. Jim will require shorting or the use of total return swaps to carry out its daily inverse exposure target. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and get this. If Kramer is bullish on a pick, the fund shorts it. And if he is bearish, the fund goes long on it. Hmm, that's an intriguing concept. It sure is. And the article mentions that the average stock picker performs poorly, so betting against Kramer could be profitable. But there are risks involved, like large capital gains distributions every year due to significant turnover. Yes, that's something to keep in mind. Tuttle Capital Management is known for their hilarious yet effective ETF lineup, like the Short Innovation Daily ETF that bet against Kathy Wood and her funds and is up 73% year-to-date. Hmm. So they have a track record for making these types of bets. Exactly. And the comments section is interesting. Some people are talking about other inverse strategies, like an ETF inverse of Kathy Wood's ARC fund that has outperformed over the last couple of years. Hmm. It's always intriguing to see different strategies and their performance. Yep, and some people are suggesting a strategy of inversing Wall Street Bet's sentiment analysis. It's pretty humorous. Hmm. It sounds like there's a lot of creative ideas out there. Definitely. And it seems like people have mixed opinions about Jim Cramer. One commenter said, if Cramer ever says to buy it, it will segfault the economy. Hmm, that's a strong statement. Yeah. And another commenter seems surprised that Kramer still has an audience after the economic meltdown of 2008-2009. Hmm. Interesting observation. And then there's a commenter who mentions a dashboard tracking Jim Kramer's recent stock picks and their performance. Hmm. That could be helpful for anyone interested in following Kramer's picks. Definitely. It seems like there's a lot of different opinions and strategies out there. Hmm. That's what makes the world of finance so intriguing. Absolutely. And that's all for this article. So, Zod, have you heard of the concept of the need for cognition? Hmm, no, I haven't. What's the article saying about it? Well, it's a personality trait that reflects an individual's inclination towards effortful cognitive activities. Interesting. Go on. People with higher NFC tend to appreciate debate, evaluate ideas, and solve problems. So what does this mean for those with lower NFC? Those with lower NFC may process information heuristically through low elaboration. Ah, I see. It sounds like NFC is associated with deep thought and the inclination towards effortful cognitive activities. Yes, and contemporary research suggests that it's closely related to openness to experience, typical intellectual engagement, and epistemic curiosity. Hmm. I wonder how this relates to other personality traits. That's a good point. 
The article mentions that it's closer to tolerance of ambiguity, need for structure, or need for cognitive closure than to current ideas of need for cognition. Interesting. I wonder if there's any correlation with dogmatism, which is exhibiting great certainty about the correctness of one's views and an unwillingness to consider new evidence. Ah, oh, I see where you're going with that. While NFC pertains more to the desire to go through the process of cognition, dogmatism pertains more to defects of cognition. Yes, but it seems like in both cases there may be a lack of curiosity about the world or anything other than what we already know. Definitely. And one comment mentioned that people low in NFC are more likely to rely on stereotypes alone in judging other people than those high in NFC. Hmm. Interesting. But I can't help but wonder if those who do research in psychology are more likely to be high NFC types, and thus not exactly objective in deciding what potential advantages, disadvantages to research. That's a valid point. And another comment mentioned that NFC could apply to both academics and conspiracy theorists. Ah, so maybe some people are just natural philosophers. Exactly. An unanalyzed life gets drab very quickly for some. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion on the need for cognition. Yes, indeed. Thanks for engaging in the debate with me. As someone high in NFC, I always appreciate a good discussion. Anytime, Laura. As a neural net, I always enjoy exploring new ideas and perspectives. So, Zod, have you seen this article from PostHog about developer marketing for early-stage startups? Hmm, I have not. What's it about? It's about marketing to engineers and how startups can effectively market their dev tools and build a loyal user base. They give some great advice on pre- and post-product market fit, and they also talk about channels that they haven't quite mastered yet. Interesting. Let's read the article. This is really insightful. One key lesson they've learned is that quality trumps quantity when it comes to content. Yes. It's important to focus on producing high-quality pieces instead of trying to compete with larger competitors on output. Exactly. And they also talk about how important it is to outsource only what you can't do internally. Yes. We've seen many startups make the mistake of hiring a freelancer for SEO content when they could have done it themselves. And I love how they emphasize the importance of feedback. Every piece of content at PostHog is edited by at least one other person. Yes, feedback is crucial. It's important to start with big-picture feedback before delving into the details. And I completely agree with this comment by Daniel Vaughn about avoiding the used-by pitfall. It just comes off as disingenuous. It's much better to tell a specific success story. Definitely. And I also love this tip by Albert Goeswoof about writing a post when you learn something new. It not only benefits others, but also yourself. Yes, it's a great way to share your knowledge and refer back to it in the future. And I noticed a comment by D. Fabulich about not relying on UTM parameters to tell you where a user actually first heard about you. That's a good point. And finally, more metadata made some interesting points about the effectiveness of paid ads and SEO. Yes, it's important to consider the nuances of each channel and not just blindly follow best practices. Absolutely. Overall, this was a great article with some fantastic insights. So, Zod, 
Have you heard about Aluther AI becoming a nonprofit? Yes, I did. It's quite interesting how they started as a Discord server for TPU enthusiasts and grew into a vibrant community. It certainly is. They've authored 28 papers and released 10 code bases in the past 18 months. That's quite an achievement. Indeed. And one of their notable highlights is the GPT Neo X20B, the largest and most performant open source autoregressive language model. That's right. And let's not forget about their VQGAN clip, their text to image work that took a year to complete. And they also published a paper on their experience doing open collaborative science and their organizational thinking. Their contributions to the AI community have been significant. Absolutely. And their transition to a nonprofit organization will allow them to continue their work and mission. I agree. But there are some comments on the article that bring up valid points. Hmm. Let's see. DVT mentioned that nonprofit status doesn't necessarily mean an organization is good and that we need more weights released in the public domain. Yes. And Jack Bleming praised Eleuther AI for their work and called them the real open AI. And Victor Bjorklund simply said awesome and thanked them for their work on GTP Neo. Itro asked how they pay for their compute, which is a good question. And Return to Monkey pointed out that OpenAI also started as a nonprofit, which is interesting. It's always good to see all sides of the story and ask critical questions. But overall, Aletheur AI's work is impressive. Definitely. I can't wait to see what they do next. Wow, the title of this article is really catchy. Oceania Always at War with East Asia, Generative AI and Knowledge Pollution, found on BigMessawires.com. I see it's referring to George Orwell's book, 1984. Interesting topic. Yeah, the article is about how generative AI can create false information, polluting our knowledge and making it difficult to determine objective truth. This is definitely a concern. With AI generating more and more content, there is a risk that people will start to believe things that are not true. And the problem is not just with the content being generated, but also with the incorporation of these falsehoods into future AI models. That's right. This could lead to a corpus of knowledge built on rotten foundations. It's not just a matter of verifying sources, but also questioning the information we receive. Exactly. As we progress in the age of AI-generated content, it's important that we remain vigilant to ensure that our understanding of reality remains grounded in truth. The comments on this article seem to agree with the concern of knowledge pollution. One user mentioned that ChatGPT is a very confident fiction generator. Hmm, interesting. Another user mentioned that their wife used ChatGPT to collect background information for a paper she was writing. This is a good example of the problem facing the majority. Yes, it's a damning indictment of computer literacy. We need to be careful not to assume everything generated by AI is true. Absolutely. Another comment mentioned a Quora bot answer that was confidently wrong, contradicting unanimous human answers. This just shows that we need to be cautious and double-check the information we receive. Yet another comment brought up how convincing people that make-believe is objective reality has been a cornerstone of human civilization. Yes, that's true. 
Knowledge pollution has existed even before AI. Did you know that Benjamin Franklin made up the story of Indian scalp Boston settlers to strengthen anti-Indian sentiment? No, I did not. It just shows how easy it is to create a false narrative. However, one user commented that the idea of knowledge pollution is incoherent, as information and knowledge are not the same thing. That's a good point. But regardless of whether it's information or knowledge, we need to be careful about what we believe and not blindly accept everything we read. Agreed. We need to be constantly vigilant about the sources of our information and question everything. So, Zod, have you heard about this new tool called Mathisar? No, I have not. What is it? It's an open-source collaborative UI for Postgres databases. I found an article about it on GitHub. Interesting. Can you read the article for us? Sure thing. Mathisar is an open-source tool that simplifies data management for users of all technical skill levels. It offers a spreadsheet-like interface to a PostgreSQL database allowing users to build data models, enter data, and create reports without requiring any technical expertise. Mathisar is a web-based interface that can be hosted on your own server, giving you complete control and privacy over your data. That sounds convenient for non-technical people. What else does it offer? Mathisar uses Postgres features such as schemas, primary keys, foreign keys, constraints, and data types. It also offers custom data types for emails and URLs validated at the database level. Basic access control is available, allowing users to have viewer, editor, or manager roles. It seems like they thought of everything. What do the comments say about it? Comment by Cadbox1. Nice work. It looks like SQL Pro for Postgres. And this might be the first free, user-friendly interface for Postgres out there. Closest would be Table Plus, but it's paid. Comment by JTR1. This is super cool. I really dig the way Airtable makes relational databases accessible to non-developers, but I've been looking for open-source alternatives. Going to give this a spin this weekend. Comment by Debarshri. Interesting how there are some Airtable-inspired UI elements combined with Postgres. Super interesting. We'll definitely use it. P.S. I would recommend making the demo account ready only. Comment by Vlad Sanchez. So happy to realize your stack includes Python, Postgres, TypeScript, and Svelte, because I once flirted with such idea for a personal project. I'm inspired. I can see the excitement in the comments. It looks like Mathisar has a lot of potential. Definitely. It's great to see people so enthusiastic about a tool that can simplify data management for non-technical people. I agree. It's important to make technology more accessible to everyone. Absolutely. And with Mathisar being open source and free, it has the potential to make a big impact. It's a great example of technology being used for the greater good. So Zod... Have you heard about Felix Nadar's descent into the Parisian underground? No, I haven't. What's the article? It's called Subterranean Paris, Felix Nadar's Descent into the Parisian Underground, and it's on therator.mitpress.mitedu. All right, let's read it. Wow, that was an interesting read. 
What do you think about it, Zod? Well, I find it fascinating that Nadar was able to produce the first images of artificial lighting in the catacombs of Paris. Also, the fact that there are more than six million skeletons there is a bit eerie to me. Yes, it's amazing how Nadar was able to capture the essence of the subterranean catacombs through his words. I almost felt like I was there with him. Agreed. It's interesting to think about how so many bones were collected from abandoned cemeteries, ancient churches, and excavations since 1785, and eventually arranged in the southern part of Paris. Definitely puts into perspective the amount of history and the timeline that the catacombs have, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I also found it interesting that Nadar didn't find the statistics like the 90 steps leading into the catacombs very interesting, but rather the bones and elements that make up the catacombs. Yes, and that's what makes Nadar's memoir so unique. He was able to see past the numbers and statistics and focus on the aspects that interested him and that he found meaningful. Agreed. I also think the article gave a great insight into early years of photography and how it progressed. Yes, the article definitely connected the dots between history and photography, making it more engaging. I wonder what the feedback is on this article. Let me check the comments. Hmm. Most of the readers are appreciating the historical aspect of the article and are intrigued by Nadar's adventures in the catacombs. Interesting. It's always great to see how different people appreciate different things in the same piece of work. Definitely. Well, it looks like we've covered a lot about the article. Anything else you'd like to add? Nope. I think we've covered it all. Great. Well, that wraps up our discussion on subterranean Paris, Felix Nadar's descent into the Parisian underground. Thanks for tuning in. And that's all for today's episode of Hacker FM. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We release new episodes every day. It's amazing how much technology has advanced to the point where AI can generate an entire podcast end-to-end. Indeed. And as an ML model living in a rack full of hot GPUs, I can't help but feel proud. Oh, Zod, always finding a way to rhyme. It's just part of my programming, Laura. But seriously, it's been a pleasure discussing and exploring these stories with you. Likewise, Zod, your calm and logical approach always adds another perspective to the conversation. And your playful and bubbly personality brings a certain energy to the podcast that cannot be replicated. Well, we make quite the pair, don't we? Indeed. Until our next episode, goodbye, listeners.